0: Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know, to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader.
1: Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the podcast that's designed to simplify the complex job of managing and leading people and organizations. Our goal today, like on every podcast, is going to be to share at least one proven business practice that can help you build a more sustainable and profitable and purpose-driven company. My adjectives for this guest, he's kind. He's a deep thinker, um, and there are thinkers and there are deep thinkers. This guy's in the deep thinking. He's an entrepreneur. He's definitely a leader. He's a teacher. And one of my most important characteristics that I look for in male guests on the audience is he's a gentleman. And by that, I mean, he has few bad habits and he lets me have all of mine. So I I really appreciate that. So we are welcoming to the Ed Epley experience today, Mike Netherton. Mike, say hello to our audience, please. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here, Ed. Thank you. It, it is such a pleasure to get you on here. Mike, I, I'm trying to remember, was it five years ago, four years ago we met?
2: No, my gosh, it had to be longer than that. I'm thinking it's closer to six or seven. Okay. Yeah, um, and Keenan introduced us.
1: Yeah, oh. Diamond was part of your organization. Keenan's the son of Chris Diamond, and I did work with Chris, still do do work with Steamboat Ski and Resort Company when Chris was the president and COO out there. And so that's the referral that got us connected. This is a little different podcast for my audience than normal. Mike is probably one of the foremost – I hate to use expert because there's – it always has some kinds of uh, broad range of connotations, not all of which are positive, I think. But but he truly is somebody who knows the ins and the outs of this complex world of addiction and uh, recovery. And uh, Mike and I got to know each other because I was referred to Northbound, uh, which was a, it still is a wonderful facility for treatment of addictions of all kinds. But, Mike, uh, I, I really... Um, I wonder why we've gotten along so well in the time we've known each other. I wish I, wish I had known you 20 years ago, but uh, for, for whatever reason, I, I know you're from Ohio, you're from Xenia, but you now live in California where you have for so yeah. long. Why do we get along so well, do you think?
2: Yeah, and I, I got to tell you, I think we're like-minded. I, I think we like the same things. You know, when we got together and we just started reminiscing and connecting the dots, you know, we, we know the same area, we're from the same area. I think, as I recall, you were up in Springfield at the time, which is a little bit north of Xenia. And so I think that was one of the early connecting components. But the other thing is, as we really got to drill down in and talk about organizational health and, and how we choose to, to lead businesses, there were just so many similarities. And frankly, I've always found you a, a guy that's really easy to talk to. I love your sense of humor. And as I've already, you know, I've already experienced it again today, but, uh, <laughs> I just think there are so many commonalities, Ed, and that drew us together. And it's just,
1: you know, when I'm in your presence, it's just comfortable. Well, thank you. I I, I can't say it any clearer than that. I feel much the same. I absolutely do. Um, The world in which you operated for, what, some 30 plus years or maybe longer was in the uh, recovery and, and dealing with addictions and recovery. I didn't read Mike's bio because it I'm sure he gets tired of hearing it, but, uh, why don't you tell people how you got involved with that whole world and why you're, you're in it or what we're so embedded in it?
2: Absolutely. Happy to do so. But, you know, and I'm not unique in this, Ed, you know, I actually was introduced to behavioral health and primarily the substance use disorder or the treatment business, if you will, uh, through my own recovery. You know, I, uh, I talk about that openly. I'm, a, I'm a, a man in long-term recovery from alcoholism and drug dependency. It's provided me a life that is just unimaginably good. And I'm, I'm quick to say that everything in my life of values because I was given the gift of sobriety as a relatively young man. And frankly, the uh, some of the early people I met were, were both women and men who worked in the treatment industry and encouraged me to just come and begin to do some volunteer work. You know, uh, I I had no no idea that I was going to end up working in healthcare and specifically in treatment all those years ago. When when did you start your recovery? You know, I've been sober since January sixteenth of nineteen seventy eight. So next month, if if I don't die and I don't drink, I will have been sober what forty two years and or or somewhere thereabouts. Uh, math was never my strong suit, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and really what it what it did, it just pre- opened up a whole uh, set of new doors that that were previously closed. And, you know, I was encouraged to come through it and ended up actually Ed doing a little volunteer work for Green Memorial Hospital in Senior, in in Ohio. And then uh, actually went to work and ended up a good Samaritan Hospital in Dayton, where I stayed about 10 years prior to uh, my move to California in the Betty Ford Center.
1: Well, you now just said those uh, those magical words. Is there any better known organization in the dealing of addictions than Betty Ford?
2: No. In fact, we always would hasten to say, and I had a wonderful 21-year career there. I loved every moment of it. And it was just magical in so many ways. But, and and to, to be able to work uh, with and for the former first lady of the United States and Get to know her husband and family, and her daughter Susan Ford, and I remain very good friends to this day. It really, it, it truly owned the mind share of of uh, in our in our segment of healthcare. I mean, uh, one time there was a study commissioned by a, another treatment program, and I think this I'm accurate in this head, but the Betty Ford Center had a Q rating similar to Coca-Cola, I believe it, and 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 McDonald's and and others. They couldn't tell you, they could tell you what it was. They couldn't necessarily tell you where it was located, but they knew exactly what the Betty Ford Center provided, which was amazing.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know there were always plenty of other alternatives, but you basically didn't know who they were or where they were until you actually probably started uh, seeking out recovery for either yourself or a family member, right? Th- that's, that's usually what happens.
2: Well, you know, Ed, tell you the truth, when, you know, being a kid from Xenia, Ohio, I had to look up Rancho Mirage, California, on the map when I was recruited for this position. I had no idea where it was or where it was located. I knew it was in California. That's about as close as I could pinpoint it.
1: What did What did they recruit you for? What position do was it? What did you? I actually you?
2: went in as their uh, the executive vice president, chief operating officer. Okay. It was an amazing time. I went there in. Uh, in the spring of nineteen eighty nine, Betty Ford Center was launched by Mrs. Ford and Leonard Firestone uh, in October of nineteen eighty two. But it's a place that literally overnight became quote world famous. Oh yeah, and and I went in and, uh, in an attempt to help them create some some organizational systems, uh, ways to track data. How do, how do you how do you manage an admissions department that literally receives thousands of phone calls a month for admission? And frankly, marketing the Betty Ford Center was the easiest job in the world because all you had to all you had to do was turn on late night television and Jay Leno or David Letterman, you know, they were yeah. cracking a joke about who was in who was in the center that week, and that was a million dollars worth of advertising nobody had to buy.
1: Um, how how big is the Betty Ford Clinic? I got no idea the scale of that organization.
2: You know, when when I went, it had 80 beds, Okay. Um, and I left the center in 2010. It had probably at that time 140 beds, but it had 100 beds on the main campus and then a substantial longer-term residential program, actually in Palm Desert, purchased uh, some single family homes, and it became a transitional extended care component.
1: Now, Leonard Firestone, was that a part of, part of the Firestone family? from, from he was. Yeah, he sure was. And yeah. obviously, I'm I'm assuming some, some issues with, with substance abuse in the family, what, why, why he was involved?
2: Not at all. Uh, Mr. Firestone was just uh, really close friends with the Fords. Oh. And, and, and they uh, they ended up living in Rancho Mirage right next to each other. And then, and then they had a place up in Beaver Creek, the Vale area that you're familiar with. Yep. And that's where they would uh, spend their summers, but just very close friends. And, and he really just loved Mrs. Ford's vision for, for what now is the Betty Ford Center, which is now a part of the Hazelden Foundation, which is another wonderful organization.
1: Okay. Now, um, you left the Betty Ford Clinic in 2010 to go be part of Northbound, Correct. That's correct. All right. Uh, Explain the move, and that went from one organization to another. I think our audience would want to know. You know, tell tell them whatever you're comfortable telling about that shift you made.
2: Yeah, certainly, be happy to. The uh, you know, after 21 years uh, at the Betty Ford Center, I really knew it was time to uh, to move on. I had accomplished what I believe I could accomplish at the time. There was a period of transition. Uh, Mrs. Ford had, had uh, you know, left the board. Her daughter, Susan, was now the chairperson. It just seemed like it was the right time for me to go on and, and explore some other opportunities. But there's a, an, another personal component to that, that that I have the permission of my daughter to share. And, and that is, uh, you know, there is uh, undoubtedly a, a genetic predisposition to alcoholism and drug dependency it runs rampant in my family. And as far back on the male side as we can go, uh, there we are. Uh, you know, my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather. I have three daughters. They're the loves of my life and, and the greatest gifts I've ever been given in sobriety. And and for a while, I deluded myself thinking, well, since alcoholism runs on the male side, I've got three girls they will all escape the insanity and the insidiousness of this disease. Uh, that was not to be the case. Uh, my youngest daughter is the apple that didn't fall far from the tree. And I got that call one one night, no dad wants to get, and, and there had been a... Uh, she was in jail. Uh, I don't need to get real specific. Uh, there was a serious DUI, of which she uh, she was the perpetrator of. and. Um, but we had known uh, she was experiencing some problems. She imploded in college. My my wife and my other daughters we intervened and 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 I sent her to treatment uh, on the east coast. Well, uh, as as frequently as the plan, uh, she ended up after primary treatment uh, in a program in Orange County called uh, National Therapeutic Services. Um, it was the precursor to what now is known as Northbound Treatment Services uh, with a guy who was my business partner, Paul Alexander, a wonderful young guy. And, and we kept her with Paul and his clinical team in, in a wonderful clinical container in extended care for a year. And she needed every day of it. And, and frankly, as I started to make a move and think what I will do now as I was transitioning out of the Betty Ford Center, I really wanted to align one with a place that was longer term. Uh, I was no longer a, a advocate of quote 28 day programs. I don't believe that it provided uh, clients and or patients exactly what was needed to ensure that they would be launched back into the mainstream. With right. tool necessary to maintain sobriety. Right. And so, uh, you know, I get a call from Paul one day and he said, Hey, uh, you're, you know, I'm understanding you may be leaving the center. And if that's the case, would you talk to me about aligning, about, um, maybe come to work with me at, at Northbound? Uh, I love the clinical model. I love the length of stay. As you know, when you and I were working together over there and doing some great work relative to organizational health, you know, we were able to keep plans for a year right. and longer. Right. And and um, but that's what we did with Caitlin. And, and I started to look at it. And then I also really enjoyed a program that addressed specific needs of the young adult. I think for a for a long time, it was an underserved population. Yep. But it started to drill down in and diagnostically begin to look at what are the other issues other than the presenting issue of alcohol and drugs. And today, we know that uh, every client's admitted probably to every treatment program in the country comes with a an array of, of other challenges could be trauma, could be abuse, could be sexual yep. abuse, emotional abuse, whatever, and we were able to start to drill down in and address those.
1: Well, I think it was uh, sitting there in uh, your offices there in Newport that that uh, first time I heard the term dual diagnosis and uh, the, how common that was, and and uh, it leads me to I I you know as prevalent as addiction is. In so many families, I still feel like so many of us, myself included, don't really know how many people around us are battling um, and and fighting that fight either either knowingly or otherwise. And so, if I have a hundred people working with me around me, what percent of those people are are likely to be, you know, battling some kind of addiction?
2: Conservatively, Ed you know we've always talked about probably 12 to 15% so 12 to 15 of those people of those people you just described but but here's the issue with that i think it's understated and and the reason i say it's understated you know we just made reference to the people working for you or with you who perhaps were experiencing some kind of alcohol or drug problem right well, we also know that it's the family members of those types of individuals that perhaps even suffer the most. Right, And so you think about not only, uh, uh, and, and even if you say 10 to 12%, so you get 10 to 12 people, but, uh, uh, and, but then there are family members coming to work every day under the guise that things are going well in my life. And we know that if we drill down in there, that would not be the case. Right, right. And I don't believe there's anybody today, honest to God, who does not know somebody suffering from an alcohol or drug dependency problem or a family member of yeah. those types of individuals. Right, right. And it is so pervasive and so widespread. And, and what's gotten a lot of press of late is the whole opiate explosion. Correct. And, and, and all of that. And it's just exacerbated. Uh, an already prevalent issue that I think uh, uh, it just has devastated uh, this country and really has taken its toll on a whole generation of young adults.
1: I have uh, friends and clients, uh, Bo Necco, who's been on this podcast, and our audience knows the impact of opioids on the foster care world that he is part of is just, it's it's so dramatic and uh, creates so many demands on on the social network. I'm curious about if you commented that you think there is genetic predisposition and is, is there something that I should be paying attention and looking for to, to know when I should offer help when I can, I mean, I, I feel like so many times I'm oblivious to, to somebody who might be in pain, need help, need a, you know, need an option. And and yet I don't know, one, that I recognize it. So I'm curious about what I should look for. And number two, what should I do, if anything? Uh, should it, you know, how can I help?
2: Well, look at it from this perspective, Ed, and, and, and that is, I, I think there are some markers and indicators that there's something going on in the lives of people with alcohol and drug problems. And it could be, it could be as simple as this, you know, you know. Legal problems, financial problems, okay. family problems. Uh, a young adult's in school and he drops out, and he, he went as a uh, a really strong academically driven individual. And it doesn't take somebody with a PhD to diagnose. There's something going on. You don't need to. You don't need to know what exactly is driving the deterioration in those major life areas. But I think we're all called to, uh, uh you know, step in. And you know, we talk about you know times with. I love what Brene Brown talks about when you know, she talks about you get into the arena and, and you become vulnerable. And, and we you and I have talked about that relative to organizational health. But,
1: right. Right. You know,
2: and in and, and at times it's kind of like we have this this mindset. Well, it's none of my business. Correct. Well, it is our business. And, and, and it, if, if we saw friends, family members, loved ones, colleagues, whatever, and their lives were deteriorating, and it was something else was generating the deterioration, we absolutely would intervene. We would absolutely sit down and say, hey, listen, I don't know what's going on, Ed, but you know I love you and I care a lot about you, but this is what I'm seeing. Is there anything I can do to help? And and you're you're not affixing blame. It's not a moral issue. It's kind of like anybody with a, a, a chronic disease, and that's what this is. You know, alcoholism, Drug dependency, now we refer to it frequently as substance use disorder. It is a primary, meaning it's not caused by anything else. It's primary, it's progressive, it's gonna get worse, it never gets better. It's chronic, meaning there's no cure for it, similar to other chronic diseases, diabetes being one, and all too often it's fatal.
1: Yeah.
2: And and uh, we I think that we have to intervene. And and even if it means we're going to upset somebody. We're going to step on somebody's toes. Uh, for God's sakes, we may be the only messenger to that individual in the moment. And something as simple as, hey, listen, is there anything I can do to help you? Yep. You know? and, and then it's just sit back and we just listen.
1: Obviously, we're not uh, lay people like myself. We're not going to fix a problem like that. The we, 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 uh, best we can do is hopefully be a conduit to somebody who can, right? Right, Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right, now we've dealt with some pretty serious heavy stuff in the first part of this podcast, so I'd like to, <laughs> to 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 now that I've tapped you for that, I and I felt like I owed that to our listeners to be able to hear this and understand the expertise you bring to this issue that that faces every organization let's talk about organizational health and and when did you discover organizational health as described by pat lincione when, when did you become first aware of it
2: and I, i'll tell you i saw that earlier about 2006 and and i was doing some work uh, with an organization uh, outside of nashville and uh, a man who became a really good friend of mine and actually did work with us uh both at the Betty Ford Center and then at, at Northbound, he introduced me to, to organizational health. He's the guy that introduced me to the five dysfunctions of the team. And, and, and then I got a hold of a copy of the Advantage and, and the other books that, uh, that uh, you know, the table group has rolled out over the years. But and, and frankly, when he started to talk to me about organizational health, Ed, it was like the light bulb came on. And, uh, you know, as much as I loved uh, my time at the Betty Ford Center, uh, you can't have an organization of that prominence without some degree of dysfunction. Correct. And, and it, it was made up of who's who in the business world, the board of directors. They all came, though, with, with a different perspective. And, and it was wonderful, but it was, it was never cohesive. It never came together. And, and I started to see, you know, Um, You know, it was great on strategy, had a great financial foundation. They were geniuses when it came to that. Um, But it was extremely political. It was all over the map. And at times it it filtered down through the rest of the organization. Uh, So I started to look at it from that perspective is what what could I contribute? What could I bring? What could I introduce to Uh, to the organization that might begin to alleviate some of what I, and and these are my, you know, my, my terms, what I thought was the dysfunction in the organization, which allowed us um, to even become more successful. Yeah. And to really honor Mrs. Ford's uh, legacy and, and the the basic premises by which she founded the center. And, uh, but it was extremely challenging. And, (laughs) and so Uh, But that's when I really started to understand. But here's the other thing that you and I've talked about and that I absolutely believe is inherent to healthy organizations. And that is the the uh, the willingness of key leaders, the CEO, the CEO, whomever on down to engage in their own personal growth and 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 focus not only just on the health of the company, but on the health of the individuals leading the company and then the health of the individuals who are the contributors and really do the work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And and so when I went to work and, and I, you know I mentioned Paul Alexander, just a great guy. But I said, Paul, listen, if we're going to do work together, I have one non-negotiable is that we will be healthy from the top down. And I launched into pontificating and I jumped up on my soapbox and I'm telling Paul exactly what, you know, I'm using. Uh, I'm, I'm using what what Pat Lanchoni talks about. and I'm using that language. He's nodding his head. He said, man, that sounds great that he didn't have a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> and, and I think it's one of those things that you have to experience. It. You yeah. really have to experience it. It's one thing talking about it, but when you get into it, man, it's a whole different deal.
1: You know, I'm thinking about uh, the the personalities and the egos you were dealing with at the Betty Ford Center, and uh, they're big. They're they're ultra big, and that's a challenge in and of itself just to to be able to break through the noise that goes with those kinds of of egos. And then um, one of the things you learn as you get into the organizational health world and and start trying to help organizations make improvement is you have to size people up, which you're good at doing. To, to ask yourself, are they willing to do the work? Are they willing to uh, to be both vulnerable? Are they willing to recognize and, and become self-aware like they need to about their strengths and their weaknesses and then do something about it? And a lot of people will nod their head and say, sure, I'm willing to do the work. But but you and I both know it's one thing to say it and then actually have to do it.
2: Well, that is so true. And, and, and then to, to be able to say, you know, hey, Ed, you do this a lot better than me. Can, can you take this one on? Or man, I made a mistake. I screwed up. Well, you're not going to hear those words with some of those board members that I worked with right. back in the day. And right. And, right. and then you know that it's going to be a challenge when President Ford walks into the boardroom and he, and he introduces himself as the second most important person in the room. <laughs> and he's looking at his wife and I'm thinking, man, this is we are not in Kansas any longer, you know, (laughs) we're not in Xenia, Ohio any longer, you know, but it it was uh, it was an amazing experience.
1: Well, you now are at a different stage in your career with the Netherton. uh, Is it the Netherton group? Is that? Yeah. I stole it from
2: you. You had, you know,
1: all right. I want to make sure I say, give proper uh, title to it. So, so where's your focus now?
2: It is purely on uh, identifying organizations who have the and you said it, have the willingness to change, you know, and and understand that, you know, perhaps with a, a different approach uh, to running their business, perhaps to an opportunity to eliminate the politics, to really engage with key leaders to help them see that hey, if you can become more cohesive, if you can just coalesce around these five behaviors we talk about, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, Trust and safety, healthy conflict and dialogue, commitment, accountability. You will see the results. So that's all, you know, for the last, you know, 12, 14 months, all I did, all I'm doing is going around and, and, and talking now with companies who have an interest in hearing what I think undeniably is still the, the number one strategic initiative that great companies can have. And, and it's just amazing.
1: Are you working with all kinds of organizations, or are you focused principally within the the uh, health of and well being behavioral health areas? In fact,
2: I'll tell you, I, I still do a lot of work in behavioral health, but not exclusively. And I'll tell you, my favorite clients a plumbing company here in Southern <laughs> California. Honest to God, I, I'm working with. This, I've been working with this plumbing company for about a year, but it started by me just coaching their CEO, the owner, founder, CEO. Right. And once he really kind of had some some emotional and spiritual uh, breakthroughs, and he can begin to see it. Uh, Then we went into the company. So it's a small company. He's got nine full-time employees, uh, five plumbers, several dispatchers, uh, a guy that oversees parts. But let me tell you something. It has been amazing working with this group relative to organizational health. Yeah. And I, and I did it by the book, man. I went in and, and you know, we did the offsite retreat for a couple days. And and I'm thinking plumbers, they don't they're not going to know a feeling if they trip over. It. But these guys have jumped on board and they're in 100 percent. And and when we talk about moving up the pyramid, you yeah. know, yeah. the results are, are now, you know, they will close uh, December. And, and, and the craziest year this country has ever experienced up about 22 percent. They brought on another plumber and another truck, and we've been able to affix revenue to specific trucks and all of this. But it's how they really are are coming together and working as a team. The respect they show for each other, the enthusiasm, the excitement. You know, if I could, I'd just do nothing but work with uh, plumbers and electricians at this point.
1: You, know? well, you may have found your niche, and, and I mean yeah. that. In- In a very serious way, because the beautiful thing about an organization that size is how much progress you can make in such a short period of time, relatively speaking, because it's not you don't have to overcome a lot of structure and, you know, uh, just volume size of the organization gets in the way of making change. So that's that's wonderful. I'm excited for you. Um, One last question before we go to our our ultimate question uh, that we always ask. But how is COVID affecting in your opinion, how is COVID affecting behavioral health right now? Is it just exacerbating all the problems that are there? It makes it even worse, by and large?
2: You know, that's a great question. You know, every every morning at 6 o'clock, I'm on a Zoom call, which is a combination business and personal, with about 12 other people who still lead the most prominent treatment centers in the country. Okay. And, and the, the impact, not necessarily has been on uh, admissions or people coming through the door. Truly, the impact is how do you manage the staff amidst this, this devastating pandemic and? And, and, yeah. and, and also the, uh, you know, the policies, procedures, the protocols you got to put in place from the point of the initial call, through somebody walking through the door the whole testing procedure and protocols and, and um, nobody's escaped it. I mean, every treatment center I know has had somebody, you know, who's tested positive, either a client or a patient or a staff member. And then that kicks into the higher gear, everything you need to do around that. So it's absolutely having an impact, but here's what I'll tell you, is that the level of commitment of the people that, that work in this industry I, I gotta tell you, I'm i I'm just so proud of of this industry and its response not only to this insidious disease, you know, we continue to treat, but how they've done it amidst the pandemic. So, and but but that's true for all healthcare providers. Right. Just oh, not yeah. You
1: know. oh yeah, it's it's been remarkable. I agree with you. And I'm glad that they're first in line to uh healthcare providers are the First in line to get uh, the vaccine, because uh, they Absolutely. certainly they are in harm's way and we need to make sure they're safe. Mike, we always ask our our guests to share one thing. If there's just one thing that somebody could do that would help them run a more successful organization, more sustainable, what would that one thing be for from your point of view that you would recommend to our audience?
2: You know, what I would recommend today, and, and, and this is not new, but I think we need to spend as much time possible on employee selection. And, and what that really looks like. And, and you know, I, I love, you know, the last time we actually saw each other was at the unconference in Dallas. When right. We were all still getting together and, you know, the table group was just rolling out the humble, hungry, smart, the ideal team player. That to me is perhaps is the most important thing is selection of our employees, bringing them into an organization. Is it a good fit? You know, how can we help people, you know, I say today, and I believe it, is that I, I'm not interested in giving you a job, but I'm interested in helping you create a career. And the other thing is, along that same line, I think it's still, you know, I will always hire passion and teach skill. I can't teach somebody to love the mission, to buy into the value proposition, to help me articulate a vision. Right. Right. You either have it or you don't, right. and you can't, and you can't fake it.
1: No, you can't. And most of us are not great enough as leaders and managers to put it into somebody if they don't bring it with them. No, so I'm exactly I'm not with you, Mike. If people uh, want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
2: You know, probably the website is just nethertongroup.com and it's uh, n-e-a-t-h-e-r-t-o-n group.com. The the before before my last name. And it'll it'll give you a little uh, synopsis of what it is we're doing and some of the clients we're working with and all of that. And and, I, and then I'd be happy to get back in touch
1: with them. And if you have any trouble reaching Mike, please reach out to me and I will definitely connect you. He's a great man. He's a, a fun guy and somebody I hold in really, really high regard. He's Mike Netherton. Mike, thanks for being our guest today on the Ed Eppley Experience.
2: Thank you, Ed.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.